Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning. It's lovely to have you along. I feel blessed to have your company this morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Coming up, we have Professor Dr. Wally Richards. I used to call him the guru, but he says no. He's Professor Dr. Wally Richards talking us to us about gardening. We're going to be covering off grass grub. You're going to probably learn more about grass grub um, than you can ever imagine with Wally. It'll be fantastic, but we're also going to cover off the growing of our tomatoes and our strawberries and what we can do to make them big and delicious. And also, time to get cracking on all our crops. Wally's going to give us a hurry up and make us want to get out in the gardening. And then we have the incomparable sporting great, Lorraine Moller talking to us about the fight that all of us should be engaged in to preserve women's sports, what it took to have women's sports properly recognised, and what it's going to take to keep women's sports for women safe, protected. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, email me at inbox at radio. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. On Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we've got the wonderful, the incomparable Professor Dr. Wally Richards. Good morning, Wally. Good morning, Rodney. We've gone from calling you the gardening guru to the professor doctor. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, gurus are something from India. You know, they they sit cross-legged. And at my age, I can't get my legs across so well. I was going to say, it's been a while since you sat on the mat cross-legged, Wally. Now, (laughs) we're going to do 
tomatoes and strawberries, but we've got a, a, a question from a listener, Bruce, and here it is. He's old school, so he's still calling you the guru, so I'll change guru in his email. I would like Rodney to ask his gardening professor doctor the following. I have grass grub through my veggie plots, flower beds, and obviously lawn. How can I get rid of it naturally without killing the plants and without having to change all the soil? Reasonably sized areas. Right. Okay. Now, before we start, Wally, how would I know that I have grass grub? Um, when you dig around and fossick around in the soil, you'll come across these little white grubs that uh, curl up into a, a, a curl when they're disturbed. Um, they're normally in the lawn. Grass grubs um, love eating the roots of grasses, and it's a native in actual fact. Um, and years gone by before us Europeans came here and, and fouled all the bush and uh, grew grass everywhere so we could have sheep and cattle and stuff. Um, the grass grubs are fairly well controlled because they're only mainly eating the native grasses roots, mm -hmm. right? But once we opened up the country to um, hectares and hectares of grass, of course, it's like anything. You give them lots of food, they populate and populate and populate. And so now um, they've been a, a big problem way and they, back. And they don't just stay with the grass. No, they can uh, go off and eat the roots of other plants as well. In the beginning, way back, DDT was used to control them, right? Mm -hmm. Later on, when DDT got banned, there was other chemical possibilities. But in a farming or in a playing field situation, you may recall in days gone by, you had a tractor with a great big concrete roller, enormous concrete roller on the I back do. of the tractor, right? Mm -hmm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. I, I've never seen one in, in so, recent times. Yeah. But the reason for that was not to level the playing field, but when the soil was a bit on the moist side, the weight of that roller would squash the grass scrubs in the soil. <laughs> Didn't know right. that. Right. That's, that's, that's how it all used to happen. Now, in a farming situation in the paddocks, what the farmers used to do was they would get all their cattle, particularly the bulls and cows and so forth, and confine them to a small area where um, the weight of them would actually press down and squash grubs in the soil. My goodness. So, that was another way it was actually controlled after DDT. Nowadays, um, those two methods can be used, but more applicable to those circumstances. I presume there are some chemicals that can be used. In a lawn situation, my suggestion is when they're active, and, and this is important, it's when there are grubs there because they have a cycle. Like the grubs eat the roots of plants and at some point in time they reach their last instar stage of development and then they'll pupate and they'll go deep in the soil to do that 
and then they'll emerge normally somewhere around about November, December period when conditions are nice as a beetle, a brown beetle, right? And that brown beetle um, will go out and you'll eat your passion fruit vine and your um, oh, lots of foliage. And in some cases, in countries' situations, at dusk, when these beetles emerge and fly, I've had reports that people thought it was a swarm of bees. There's just thousands of them. Wow. Right? And and then they come and devastate. They, everyone has a little chomp up on some foliage of preferred plants. And um, then, of course, they um, lay the eggs and start the cycle off again. So if Bruce wants to deal with them, he's got to get onto it. Yeah. It's, it's a real problem. There are some ways of dealing to it. In a situation when the beetles are on the wing, and I had one lady one time, she contacted me, and she just bought this property, and the previous owners had a large plantation of blueberries. And when she bought the property, her thoughts was, okay, at blueberry time, I'll harvest these blueberries and I'll sell them and that'll help pay the mortgage, right? Unbeknownst to her was grass grub, uh, beetle problem, right? And she rang me up in tears and she said, what can I do? She said, these blueberry plants have been eaten alive. I've got no income and... I thought to myself, you poor lady, you didn't know about the beetles. No. No. I don't know how she got on in the end, but um, at that point of time, there's very little could be done other than going out with um, pyrethrum and spraying them um, after dusk when they are landing on the plants. Pyrethrum, as used as fly spray, mm. um, can be um, a quick knockdown, but uh, when you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of beetles, it's it's a plague, like biblical times. Yes. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So what I have suggested for people who are on lifestyle blocks, etc., or even in the home garden situation, when the beetles are on the wing, is to set up in a window a very strong light right, and underneath the window pane have a trough, like a wallpapering trough, in which you sit there and you half fill it with water and you float a little bit of kerosene on top of the water, right. You turn your light on, coming up to dusk. The beetles and moss as well will be attracted to the light. They'll fly at the window hit their heads on the window and drop down into the trough. And because of the kerosene, they can't get out. They're stuck there, right? So next morning, you can empty it out, feed them to the chooks if you've got chooks, or alternately flush them down the toilet, get rid of them, right? Um, the light you would turn off again probably once the banging on the window stops. Mm. It's a good indication. <laughs> There's no more. <laughs> and 
people that live um, in the country and even in town, like if you have a window with a light inside and you haven't pulled the curtains, quite often at night you'd go bang against the window. Mm. It's not birds, it's beetles or moths. And you could deal to a plague like that? You'd kill a yeah. lot of beetles. You can, yeah, because they're going, particularly in a situation like that where there's no other lights to distract mm. them. Mm. With, with grass scrub beetles, the worst aspect is people that have a street light outside the house. Ah. And that light attracts them to there, and then they will lay the eggs in the front lawn or thereabouts, right? And they'll have an ongoing problem every year. People that have night lights going all night attract the beetles and the moths. Um, so once again, when those things are on the wing, light is the attractor. And once they get to there – now. There's also, remember in the old days, you went to the butchers and hanging up. Oh, those yellow strips. What was this electric thing, right? Oh, yes. Remember with a purple light? Yes. And every now and again, zap and and splatter, and a fly would be splattered all over the meat. Of course, they're illegal now. They can't have them. (laughs) (laughs) It's more protein for nothing, you know. (laughs) There's um, new versions of that, which are quite handy, neat, little compact units. The problem, of course, is they're 230 operated. And you don't want them to be rained on or anything because that's not a very good thing to have happen. But in a sheltered uh, situation facing outwards or sometimes in a glass house, um, one of these things set up uh, in, on an extension cord, safely done, so mm-hmm. the, um, the coupling doesn't get wet um, mm-hmm. and cause a problem. Um, but they will attract a lot of insects uh, at night time and even during the day, in actual fact, uh, the ultraviolet light. Um, and what are they called, those lights, Wally? Well, I've got one sitting here. It's called Insect Killer and the maker's Sanai or Sansai. But go out on the internet. Um, you could bring them in from overseas, but I think mm. there's New Zealand ones. Um they're quite handy inside the house um, mm. for flies um, near some near the entrance, etc. But for beetles um, or moss outside, and of course the moss, you've got the problem with the um, grava moss, um, which is mainly in Northland, Auckland area, um, and only filtering down. It's a um, a beastie that eats, uh, lays its eggs on all fruit. Codlin moth, for instance, is only attacks apples and pears and walnuts, but the grava moth is citrus, nuts, um, stone fruit, pit fruit, so they go all year round. Um, and then there's the other one up north too, which hasn't got down to me. Uh, they call it the army worm, my God. 
Have you heard of the army word? Never. No, I've only heard of it this year, but it's been around for a while, and and the populations are built up. Once again, it's a moth who lays its eggs at night time on veggie plants, um, etc. And the reports that I've had back from a couple of people up north is like there's literally hundreds and hundreds of caterpillars all having a big munch up on, on people's plants um, from this moth who's laid the eggs. And there was a commercial grower and a hydroponic grower out of business because their crops are just completely devastated. My goodness. Oh my so goodness. once again, my thoughts are uh, a light trap to catch the moths before mm. they lay the eggs mm. is a damn good thing. And, and mm. all these pests, of course, come from um, the underarm bowlers in Australia. Of course. Yeah. Those filthy Australians. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Professor Dr. Wally Richards. Our, our gardening expert. You can give him a call on 0800 466464. You can email him at wallyjr@gardennews.co.nz. at And remember the trick that Wally does to siphon out those that pay attention from those who don't. Garden News has only one N. Think about mm. it. Figure it out. Now, Wally, what could Bruce do? Is there anything he can do while there are grubs in his garden and in his lawn? Right. Okay, now the grubs eat roots, so that, that's the key to the whole thing. So what we can do is when you plant your plants, you put Wally's neem tree powder in the planting hole, right? The neem properties from that will get into the root system. After you've planted your plant, you put neem tree granules, which are bigger particle size. The only difference between powder and granules is the particle size. The granules can be quite big chunks. So a bit awkward putting in the planting hole where the powder is nice. And then the chunks on the so top of the soil, the neem properties leach down and get into the root system of the plant. And then when the little grass grub or wireworm or whatever in the soil eating the roots um, has a munch on the roots, they get some neem in their gut, they stop eating, start to death. End of story. Perfect. Simple as that. Right. Can you can you put that on your grass? Yes, but the powder, once again, for the okay. grass, um, because um, when you mow the lawn, you've got to be a little bit careful because particularly with a rotary mower, it will suck up the chunks, right? Okay. So the powder, ideally. So for grass scrub in the lawn, which are probably active at the moment, um, yeah. Yeah, they could be quite easily active at the moment. The best way to find out is you cut a square with your spade in the lawn and lift the turf, right? Yeah. You turn it over and you have a look on both sides. Is there any there white grubs curling up? If there is, and there's quite a few of them, and I'm talking like half a dozen, dozen or more, well, then it's worth treating. If there's yeah. one or two, probably doesn't make much difference. Okay. Where people have problems in the lawn with grass scrub is where there's nightlight attracting them, right, or where there's been an infestation and a problem the year before mm. because the beetles tend to return to where they emerged 
from, unless they're attracted away by light, um, and lay the eggs back where they used well, to Well, that seems rather a neat fix because uh, you can deal to it. You can deal to them when they're grubs. You can deal to them when they're adults and they're beetles. And if you deal to them, um, you'll have um, much less of a problem next year if you have one at all. Now, tell me, uh, Wally, would you need to apply that neem powder more than once to your lawn? No, because it's only seasonal. Okay. So once you know there's grass scrub there, apply the powder. Now, ideally the soil should be moist, yes. right? And then you and you mow the lawn, so not scalp it, but you know, mow it fairly short, right, so the powder can get down. And then you give it a light watering to wash it off the foliage to get it onto the soil. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a roller, by chance, you roll it because that will press the powder into the soil, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have, and it's sitting on top of the soil and you've got a rotary mower, it would pay, rather than put the catcher on and collect the clippings, is to actually let the clippings go back on the lawn because any powder would be just recycled back onto the lawn. Yeah. It looks a little bit untidy, but I'm always amazed because I, I don't use a catcher on my lawns and it looks a bit, you know, not very nice for a few days, but within a week it's all gone. Mm. It's so quick. It gets and you've the kept the back in. You've kept the nutrients. Yeah, it, it feeds back into the grass itself. The only problem is over a period of time, you get a thing called thatch. Now, thatch is a debris that builds up on the soil surface, right, in your lawn. And when you walk on the lawn, it feels spongy like a carpet. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not good for the grass and it's not good for um, water getting away and so forth. So ideally, if you build up thatch on the lawn, you should get rid of it. We do have a product called Thatch Buster, which is a food that you spray on the lawn and it goes down and it feeds the microbes that are there, builds up their population, and they eat up the thatch. Mm. And they will, with the aid of the Thatch Buster building their populations, they will eat an inch of thatch in a month. <laughs> My God, and that converts it back to real good food for the um, yeah. grasses. Isn't that great? Isn't nature amazing? Now, that's Bruce's grass grub uh, problem taken care of, we hope, Bruce. Tell us about tomatoes and strawberries this time of year now. Okay, well, with tomatoes, one of the most important things when you plant your tomato plant is to realise that the plant can root all the way up the trunk, right? So you plant it deep. Mm. It's the only plant that I'm aware of that you plant deep. If you plant a lot of plants deep beyond where they would normally um, be growing out of the pot or out of the punnets or whatever, um, chances are they'll rot at the um junction where they're underneath the soil. You can't do it with um, the grafted tomatoes because they're grafted, but with an ordinary tomato, up to those first true leaves, 
right? So you've got several inches or two or three inches of trunk that is going to be planted in a deeper hole. Now, it will root up all the way up there, mm. right? Mm. And as a result of that, um, they'll have a bigger root system, and having a bigger root system means more food, bigger plant, better tomatoes. Well, I've got a wee admission to make, Wally. And I knew that. And I grew my seedlings. I planted 12 seeds and I got 10 little tomato plants. And when they're about an inch high, I planted them into my um, tunnel house. I have to say they're doing rather well. I've got to keep the water up to them. So almost they almost grow in front of my eyes. If I don't see them for a couple of days, I get quite a shock. But I didn't bury them down to that first leaf because I had forgotten what you told me. Oh. Should I dig them in a bit deeper or pile up a mound around them? You, you can mound up. Now, you possibly notice too, later on the plants are bigger, they get little bumps on the trunk. They are actually the beginnings of aerial roots. Yes. Ah. So you could mound up to those or mound up around, and sure enough, it will produce those roots and they'll be in the mound. It would be much better to mound up because it won't mean disturbing the roots that are there, eh? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And – that is amazing to remember about, about about your tomatoes. And should you stake them when you first plant them out or wait till they get a bit taller? The aspect of sticking a stake in uh, next to a plant, um, you're going to damage some roots, which yep. is not a bad thing, really. Um, really staking is when they are larger and you're going to support them because the fruit, of course, is heavy once the fruit develops and um, it needs some support. Now, if, if you're growing tomatoes, which are like a kilo per tomato, some of the giant ones that you've mm-hmm. got, I remember, and it always amused me, in Blenheim, um, a chap advertised in the paper for – uh, old bras, particularly big cup bras, because he <laughs> wanted to support these monstrous tomatoes that he was growing, and and he found that a bra was perfect slim. <laughs> he was off to the AMP show with the biggest tomato and a bra. Yeah, and a bra still around it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! So, um. Now, laterals. No, no, let me get back to the staking. Okay. Do I stake them when they're little or do I wait till they grow a bit? Um, When do I put the stake in? When's best to put the stake in? I'm thinking I need to put the stake in now. Ideally, probably, you put the stake in at the time that you plant them. Okay. And what's – my wife has normally got these stakes from Bunnings that have like a circular thing on them, and she feeds the vine up through the circular thing. Is that a good idea, or are you better – they're good? No, that's that's okay. It's support. Yeah. 
So uh, it's supporting the plant as it's growing up. It grows up in the spiral and, and the foliage goes out and it's got something to rest on and that's that's good value. Okay, now back to laterals. Okay. Laterals are side shoots that come out from between the trunk and the leaf, right? Now, if you let them grow, you end up with a massive um, dense plant because all of those become another plant, mm. literally living off the parent. And it means that the fruit size will be smaller, but you'll have a lot more of it, right? And the problem, of course, is you're going to have to support those laterals later on once they get a bit of size. It becomes, in my experience, when my wife's done it, a total mess. Yeah. The lato's falling over on the ground, they're shaded, they get wet, and you've just got a big mess of plant and tomato, and they're not tidy. No, no. So ideally, when the little laterals come out and they're, they're big enough, you just pinch them off. Now, there's a very big danger here, particularly in a glasshouse situation, but it can happen outdoors as well, that when you pinch them off, you create a wound. Mm -hmm. And if it's humid with ample moisture in the atmosphere, botrytis can get into that wound because it's carried on the moisture, and then it will go down the trunk somewhere and set up shop, which is collar rot. So what happens later on, you start to notice that your plant um, at the top is starting to wilt during the day. It, it might come right later on, but it will progressively wilt more and more because what's happening as the collar rot develops, it's cutting the roots off from the top. Mm. And so the top dies literally, because it's got nothing from down below. When you remove laterals, it should be dry. You haven't just watered and recently. Um, the atmosphere is dry, and ideally, in a little trigger sprayer, you have a bit of liquid copper made up, and you just give it a squirt. Mm. So you protect the wound. When you say you pinch it, is that sounds technical. That means you just put your thumb and your forefinger together yep. and twist it. And, and pinch pinch it out, yeah. Pinch it out. And yep. so you use that rather than scissors or a knife. Um, there's an old um, story that you should never put steel to a plant. Okay. And scissors or a knife and so forth, second tears, et cetera, et cetera. Unless they're made of copper, of course, and then it's allowed. Is that an old story that you subscribe to? There's some truth in it, in mm. actual fact. Um, iron, in fact, I wrote an article one time about um, a case in a country overseas in medieval times where the king was really concerned about why his farmers weren't producing the same amount of um, produce from their crops as the neighbouring country next door. And they sent, he sent this guy out to discover the reason. 
and it was because his farmers were using iron ploughs, naughty, where the other farmers were using copper ploughs. And the difference changed the structure of the soil and the amount of moisture retention. Oh, there you go. Oh, well, I won't yeah. argue with you, Wally. I'll pinch. Can those laterals be planted? Yes. So if you let them grow and they get about, um, say, two or three inches long. Yeah, 75, <laughs> 75 millimetres, yeah. Ah, there we go. Um, I, I have to get my ruler out and yeah, look yeah, at yeah, it. Yeah, 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 50 um, to 75 millimetres. Yeah, yeah, so you can strike them as another plant. No trouble at all. Um, they're quite easy to do. And Do you put them in water or straight into your soil? Ideally, either way, uh, okay. just what you prefer. Oh, that would be fun because then um, you'll get your tomatoes at different levels coming through the season. Yeah, yeah. And those plants, of course, can be grown on for your second crop, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, so removing laterals is fairly important. Protecting the wound is important. Interestingly enough, I've learnt that in a commercial glasshouse tomato growing situation, that even removing the fruit in the humid situation, they lose about 20% of their crop through botrytis getting in to where they've taken the fruit off. No, so you should spray that. Spray that with a bit of copper too. Yeah. Or, it, like, with the tomato plants, once the plant gets up a metre or so high, I like to remove the bottom leaves, right? And yeah. I just snap them off. Once again, yeah. you don't pinch them, you snap them off. <laughs> <laughs> All these technical terms, Wally. Yeah. It's like How do psych- I snap it compared to pinching it? Well, if you it. lift lift the leaf up or down, it'll, it'll, it'll just break off. It'll okay. snap off, right? Got it. I got the snap. I got the pinch. Yeah. Right. Once again, you don't do it when it's humid yeah. uh, in a dry situation or use your copper spray to protect. Um, those bottom leaves, will, if there's any insect pests around, they'll be harboring the insects on them. So by taking the leaves off progressively, you're removing a lot of your problem, right? Mm. And when you take the leaf off, ideally put it into a plastic bag and seal it because if there's a whole lot of insects on it, you don't want them getting out. No. Right? So it also means later on too with spraying, um, there's less plant to spray mm. if you're having to spray for either disease or pests. But aren't you contradicting yourself because you were telling me on another session that your leaves were your solar panels. Mm-hmm. And generating the energy, and if I'm removing leaves, I'm and I'm getting less energy into my plant. Yes, but then again, you've got a lot of new leaves up the top, and it's always producing new leaves. Okay, so it's balancing out, and you can find sometimes, particularly with um, virus or insects, that those bottom leaves get quite curled, gargled, not nice. And they're not producing much anyway. Mm. So, and there's also the old aspect that um, you've got a lot of green uh, tomatoes on your plant. They're not ripening. You want to get some light onto them, and then you remove some foliage to let the light in to ripen the fruit. Got it. 
do I have how do do the tomatoes need to be pollinated? No, they are self-pollinating, like you don't have bees or anything doing it. Yeah. Um in a glasshouse situation, you need to go out on a sunny day, and even outdoors is a good idea to do this. On a nice sunny day, it means that the flowers are out, they're producing pollen because of the sunlight, and you tap the plant to make it mm -hmm. vibrate, mm -hmm. right? Or tap the stake to make it vibrate. The vibration actually moves the pollen across mm. and sets the fruit. You were telling us that funny story about the Chinese market gardener with the big glass house that had the coke in the in the floor, and he had them tied up with string, and he could give it a bang, and the whole lot of them would vibrate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All so tied. I I remember some things you teach me, and I got to remember. Um, I do some silly stuff in my garden, Wally. I'll share one with you. I've been eating lettuces, um, out of my tunnel house. Oh my goodness, it is such a pleasure to go and harvest the lettuce and bring it home and put it in a sandwich, which I do love with uh, Marmite, not Vegemite, Marmite, and lots of butter, and also um, salads already from my tunnel house. But I noticed that there was mm, a bit slimy inside the lettuce. And my wife looks at me and she says, When you water these, do you just spray the water on the lettuce? I say, yes, of course I sprout on the lettuce. She says, all the water is getting stuck in the leaves. She said, you've got to water around the lettuce a, 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 a bit. So that was something that I didn't know, Wally. Yeah. Um, because of your closed atmosphere in the tunnel house, if it's outside, of course, that would just dry out yeah. much quicker. Th there is another problem, which um, with hearting lettuces, in the summertime, they need to be actually not in full sun. They need a more shaded situation because they will actually cook in the sunlight and the heart of the lettuce will be all slimy. Oh. It's called slime heart or something. I forget the technical term for it, but it's caused by um, too much sun on the lettuce and cooking it. And lettuces are a big leaf plant, so they need light but they don't need a lot of direct sunlight. And so, so in that situation, would you cover them with a bit of cloth or something? If, if they were in a full sunny situation in summertime, um, yes, a bit of shade cloth would be ideal to keep them happy um, or plant them in a place where it's only morning sun or late afternoon sun, mm. not all day full-on sun. Well, down here in Otago, my lettuces are going to cook and there's no shade, so I better invest in some shade cloth. Anything else about tomatoes, Wally, that we need to know? Food. Food. Right. Now, first of all, particularly in your glasshouse, tunnel house, white fly is a big problem and feeding the plants a lot of tomato foods that are out there available lack in potash. There's some potash, but not enough, right? <clears throat> so the results are that people don't really get um, good crops. I have my own secret tomato food, which I think I mentioned before. Yes. Now, did I tell you the story about how that came about? No. 
There was a chap that lived in Fielding. He's now passed. Um, his name was Ford, right? And he came to my garden centre one time and he said, look, you've got all these tomato foods here. Which is the best tomato food? Because I've tried a lot. They're no bloody good. I said, really? Okay. <laughs> That's why I'm selling them. He said, can you find out what would be the best tomato food? So, okay, I said. So I went and consulted some experts and fertilizers and things like that, and we came up with Wally's secret tomato food, right? Now, the secret of it basically is it's got a lot of potash in it, right? It's got the nitrogen, it's got all the rest of the house your father's, but it's more potash, right? People who use it, they come back to me and say, oh, my God, the best tomatoes I've ever had, right? And now this guy, <laughs> I gave him some after I made it up, before I started marketing it. And I said, here, go and try this. He came back to me. He said, that's excellent. This guy was so fastidious that he could tell the difference of the flavour of fruit, tomato fruit, if they were water with chlorinated water or not. Oh my goodness! Yeah, he 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 must be one of these guys, you know, like yeah, a chef. They've so got yeah. really good taste buds, and they can distinctly yeah. tell the difference. Yeah. Me, I I just eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and now, correct me if I'm wrong. Potash is what comes out of your wood burner. Uh, potash, yes, uh, it is. Um, so wood ash is potash, hence yeah. the name potash. Um, so that could be used. It's it's not very strong and it should be fairly fresh, which is a problem because you're probably not burning much wood in the middle of summer yeah. when you need it. Um, it can be stored dry. Um, but Wally's Secret Tomato Food, and we add to that neem tree granules or powder, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in a glasshouse situation, your worst problem is whitefly by far, right? And once they get established um, during the season, no matter how much you spray, you, you've always got a problem, right? It's ongoing. You touch the plants and up come clouds of these adults off there and there's thousands of nymphs feeding on the plants, taking all the goodness out of them and so forth. So it's, it's dismal. If you start the season off right and you put um, Wally's um, secret tomato food, a little bit of that with the neem powder in it, in the planting hole, so some in, down there for mm -hmm. the roots, and you sprinkle some on top of the soil, the neem itself creates a smell which helps disguise the smell of the tomato plant. Mm -hmm. So white fly flying by can't smell your plants in your glasshouse. It works to a point outside, but not quite so well because you haven't got a closed atmosphere. Yeah. Also, for white fly, ideally, the yellow sticky white fly traps, which you put up uh, near your yeah. door, near your vents and so forth. Yeah. So any incoming attracted to the yellow sticky trap and they get stuck on that. So most important to have that. Between the two things and removing bottom leaves and and so forth off the plant when they get bigger, you can have a relatively good season free of 
a lot of white fly problems. Right. Great. Right. That's tomatoes, Wally. Now, so my big drive is to get some of your secret tomato food, and I've got my strips up, um, and I'll put my steaks in. Now, onto my strawberries. Tell right. me about strawberries. Okay. As we spoke earlier, and it's a fact that this season there's not much strawberry plants around for people to buy um, because of the floods, and et cetera, et cetera. Growers got wiped out and lost all of their plants. The old plants from previous seasons, I've had strawberry plants. I've kept them going for three or four years. My goodness. Um, They get to the point where they become too big and clumpy, and they still produce a bit. But, uh, of course, the runners that they create during the um, time in which the fruiting finishes and they create runners, they're good because they're new plants. But ideally, Microsin, a product that we have called Microsin, is you mix that up with your water and you spray the foliage regularly, which means every week or twice a week. <laughs> it's a food for the um, plants and it's also a food for the microcilium fungi and the beneficial microbes in the soil. People tell me, and I see this myself, I go and spray my strawberry plants with it, and then a day or so later, I'm going, oh, my God, they've grown. They do. They respond for it incredibly well. Because they're a woodland creature, they normally live in wood forest circumstances. They don't like full sunlight too much, um, but they can handle it. They prefer um, a reasonable amount of sunlight, particularly to ripen the berries. But if you spray microsome over the plants and starting now and carry on weekly at least through the season, and once you made the stuff up in a trigger sprayer, just leave it sitting next to where the plants are yes. and grab it, go past, spray, 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 Away you go, right? I guarantee you'll increase your crop by at least four hundred percent. No, yeah, no trouble at all. Oh, I got to get onto my order. Okay, Wally, what else about (laughs) strawberries that I need to know? Okay, I'll tell you a story about Microsoft. There was a commercial grower who didn't read the instructions. Right, how much per liter? He used a lot more. He ended up with strawberries so bloody big that his boxes that he put some in to sell were too small. He had to get another <laughs> boxes <laughs> to accommodate the size of these great big berries. My goodness. My goodness. Isn't that amazing? Now, strawberries, tomatoes, what else should we be doing in the garden about this time? Oh, planting. Um, everything except for heat-loving plants such as it's a bit early for cucumbers, um, zucchinis, etc. unless you're in a glass house or sheltered situation. Um, cucumbers, if you plant a cucumber now, it will sit and sulk unless okay. it's in a glass house. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Dying here. Um Keep with us, Wally. Keep with us. 
stay alive a bit longer, write another book. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, outside, um, because temperatures are not evenly warm yet, they're up and down. Uh, but brassicas, silver beet, um, seeds, carrots, all those sort of things get stuck in and, and get your veggies going. What about asparagus? I've got a hankering after asparagus. Asparagus is a long-term crop. And, yeah, you can make an asparagus bed. Um, you're not really harvesting much for the first few years, but oh. each year it's going to get better. Okay. In fact, I think the first year, uh, when they send up their ferns, and they call them ferns, actually, um, you, you don't actually uh, – the spears that come up, you let them go to fern, right? Yeah. So it gets much sunlight, develop the root system better and better, right? Yeah. The hungry plants, um, you make up a bed, say, a metre by a metre square, yeah. Um Put lots of manure in, all that good stuff that you've got. Yeah. You you buy some crowns. Now the trouble is you don't know if the crowns are male or female. Oh. And it's the males you want because they're the ones with the spears. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, Wally, okay. Still yeah, okay. The female um, ones, which will flower later on and produce the berries. Um, you usually pull them out and get rid of them. So you only need the male ones? Yeah, yeah. You so don't need don't... Any, any. Okay. Because you're not looking for seeds, you're looking for spears. So the spears are the growth. So when you buy the crowns from the store, you are 50-50 male-female, but you don't know until they grow what which ones they are. Yeah. And so because they grow for years – you want a dedicated area of your garden, and that's your asparagus bed. Right. And in the wintertime when it's dormant is when you go out and you collect seaweed and you put that over the bed along with animal manure, et cetera, et cetera. You really shove the food in when they're dormant. And then in the spring, of course, when they come away, up come the spears in which you harvest when they're a nice size. And the first year... You don't harvest any, you let it grow uh, and establish. The second year, you might have a small harvest, uh, but not much. Uh, it's really years three, four or so before you're starting to really um, get a, a good crop to harvest. Well, that will test my patience, um, but I might get into that because I need to put a dedicated bed in. I might do that. Uh, next year because as you say we've got to get gardening Wally don't we we've got a lot of stuff to put in mm -hmm. yeah for sure everything now and I find the asparagus in the can is very nice <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Wally Richards he's our professor doctor of the gardening world you can call him on 0800 466464 you can email him wallyjr at garden news he loves taking calls, he loves getting emails, he loves getting orders, and he's very, very helpful if you have any complaint about your garden and you're not quite sure what to do. Professor Dr. Wally Richards will put you right. Wally, it's always a pleasure. 
You have a great day in your uh, gardening and in your warehouse, sorting out your orders. Um, and thank you for your time. Lovely. Pleasure. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. I'm going gardening. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. You're on Rally Check uh, Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me at inbox at I always have special guests, so I've got to be careful because we've got a special, special, special guest uh, this morning. It's a sporting hero, and I feel so blessed that she'll come on the show with me. And we're going to be talking about women's sport, which is under assault, madly, crazily. And we're going to discover about that. It's our sporting great Lorraine Moller. Good morning, Lorraine. Good morning, Rodney. It was so wonderful. It was so wonderful that you shared with us last time you were on. And if anyone listening hasn't heard it, go to listen to it. It's Oh, one of my top favorite interviews with Lorraine Moller opening up and describing to us her Olympic journey. It was magnificent, Lorraine, and I feel blessed that you shared that with us. Thank you. It was, I went there with you, and I had all the thrill and all the excitement. Of course, not really, because I didn't put in the hard yards and do all the effort that you did, but I just, I think about it all the time. And um, we have looked up to you for such a long time. And I want to address women's sports, but I want to raise with you an issue that troubles me and it might trouble listeners. And it's how do we, we have our kids, they go into sport. And I don't know whether I've changed or parents have changed, but I see a lot of pressure on kids in sport not just to enjoy it and to compete hard and have fun and then go home afterwards and eat an ice cream, but it's like to be the next, if they're runners, to be the next Lorraine Moller and be a sporting great, or if they're playing rugby, to get into the All Blacks or to be a world champion tennis player. And the reality of it is most of us are just, average you know what i mean i mean it it falls to very few to be the world's best but i'm looking at these parents on the sideline with little johnny and mary who are 10 years old and they're being screamed at to succeed and the parents disappointment when they don't is so manifest that the wee kid feels it and feels a failure and yet i look at it and i think you're a little kid Sport's meant to be fun. Do you get that sense too sometimes? 
Oh, absolutely. I know what you're talking about, Rodney. And uh, I think, you know, it's probably uh, gone down its track in, in New Zealand because New Zealand has such a, a identity with our sports people. Mm. So, um, but the, when it comes to children, uh, often what you get is parents who uh, project onto their children their unrealized dreams. Yes. I didn't and, climb Mount Everest, but Johnny will. Yes. And so they push kids into what they think or to finish their story rather than giving uh, children the um, opportunity to develop their own goals and dreams and to follow their own path. And that that's a, not an easy thing for a lot of parents. Um, because they are still, you know, we always want the best for our children, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, by the time they become teenagers, they're not having a bar of it. So, you know, if you're going to push something onto them, they you, you need to do it as a child, right? The, um, um, the drop-off in sports is big in New Zealand in like 15, 16, 17-year-olds isn't it because yes. they they break away and they've been good at a sport and they've been overly pushed yes and also there are so many other distractions yes so Boys it and becomes girls for much easier yeah you can bury yourself in a in an alternate reality on a computer so easily or on a phone um so they the important thing with the children and i've worked with rod dixon on his kids marathon program and it's a wonderful program all it it's a simple running program but instigated in schools mm -hmm. and i developed a program to help teachers and um, his uh, people who were coaches of his program to understand childhood development. So I did quite a lot of research on it. And uh, what's really obvious is that uh, children's physical development is happening really, really fast, um, you know, from the time they're born and they, they just rapidly change. I mean, every parent knows you've got a different kid in a week, you know, mm. Um and that physical development is so important that they develop the um, structures, the cellular structures, to be able to produce energy in a healthy way. And the, that uh, infrastructure that is laid down during childhood is what is going to take them through their adult years and sustain a basic sense of vitality and health. And they sh will naturally want to move. You can't stop kids from moving. <laughs> they mm -hmm. need to play. Uh, one of the things that uh, really uh, stands out in terms of inhibiting childhood development is the, the large amounts of time that children now are spending sitting. Then mm -hmm. the bodies are not made to sit. Uh, you know, a child that fidgets and and you know, wriggles around and all the rest uh, is then given a label, uh, whereas they're probably the healthy child with a healthy instinct. Mm -hmm. um, so that sitting is really like uh, so bad for children's development. Um, and then that goes along with the amount of screen time and then the constant feeding, and especially with refined sugars. Mm. So we've got the three S's, the sitting the screens and the sugar, which 
uh, or will impede uh, childhood development and their ability to move. And what they end up with is uh, they don't have a basic uh, base of being able to produce energy that is going to last them their whole lifetime. And then whatever they're put on this earth to do, they're not going to probably be able to finish the job um, because, you know, this frightening statistic of children not having uh, the same lifespan as their adults. I know. It's never happened before. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, we it's a total experiment with our children, this exposure to screens and the internet and these games because mm-hmm. oh my goodness i got a nine-year-old and you have to watch him like a hawk because he is an active kid but if he has an option of grabbing a phone or grabbing a computer and hopping on a game he will and he becomes a different personality afterwards it's mm-hmm. terrible to watch it's the same by the way as if he feet has a whole lot of sweets he becomes unmanageable and you can see it that they turn into monsters um and it's carefully crafted obviously to be addictive yes so you know they're getting their um dopamine hits and their whole new neurology is getting engaged and developed around this uh device Mm. and that's uh, dangerous in itself whereas in our day it was you know it's sunny your mum kicked you out the door and off you went and you went exploring and you know you you scaled cliffs and jumped in rivers at least we did and you know and you'd come home when it started to get dark and you got a little bit hungry or somebody broke an arm or something you know (laughs) I had a funny I had a funny story with my nine-year-old because I had him home from school one day and um, I was busy and of course he wants to get on a computer screen and I'm always saying no and I'm feeling like the, you know, don't you love me and let me on a screen? No. And I had listened to a Matt Walsh podcast and so I went out and I got a big box, you know, like a supermarket cardboard box and I got a pen and a set of scissors and I said, here, play with this. And you know, he was playing with that box for two and a half hours. Mm. And he was completely absorbed in making a spaceship or a car or some such. And you think, how remarkable is that? And he completely forgot about computers and computer games and screens. And you think, how much better for you? And of course, we had no option but to play with that box. And when Matt Walsh said that, that it'll keep a kid occupied for two hours, I didn't believe him. Yeah. (laughs) And it did. And it Um, did. And sport, what you're saying about sport is it's about that activity for a child to have a healthy body and a healthy mind for the rest of their life because they're doing that development. And it's about that, not actually you've got to be Lorraine Moller. Yeah, well, those are... um... You know, I mean, kids wouldn't know these days who Lorraine Moller is, but um, that uh, 
is an adult concept pushed on to children. And that is a whole area that we could probably talk about, that children are not being allowed to be children. So in our day, there were laws about marketing products to children. You weren't allowed to do it. Mm. And uh, and I think that's changed, or at least we're marketed to um, whether we like it or not. There are uh, billions that are spent on yes. how to capture the mind and have us buy things that we don't really need. Yes. And uh, when we get engaged with these things, then it's time taken away from how we would naturally develop. And we have the natural world. We the natural world is where we're supposed to be doing our um interplay play being the key word. Yes. Um and children will naturally navigate towards that. They'll navigate towards movement and they will explore as far as they're comfortable with. Yes. And you know, each stage of development, the world should get bigger until yes. they're ready to make good decisions and they have healthy habits established, which then carry them throughout their adulthood to be productive members of our um, society and contributing. It's a challenge like never before for parents, uh, I can promise you, because I'm on my second time round with kids and even uh, my oldest is 34 and my next one is 12 and then nine, uh, 10 and 9. And the world they're growing up in and what they're exposed to is so radically different to 20 years ago. Um, it's a completely different world. And and it's hard for parents and it's hard for kids because all their mates are on computer games, all their mates are eating ice cream and chomping on sweets and parents throw them a big bag of sweets because parents are having to work longer hours and harder to pay the mortgage and they're using sweets and screen time as a babysitter. Um, and kids are not just playing these games, but they're being exposed to things um, that kids should never be exposed to. So it's a very, very challenging time for parents. And grandparents, of course, are looking at this and thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, what is happening to these poor children? Not And, and just... I just love sport and kids playing sport and having a game of rugby, um, having a throw around with the ball, and that sheer enjoyment that kids have. And I love competition as well. But it's to keep that perspective of kids developing a healthy outlook that we can easily lose. And as you say, you listen to parents and they're talking about how great their kid is as though that's them. Well, I think the operative word for children is play, mm. and everything should be around play. Mm. Mm. Games. Um, to what age, if you are serious about a sport? If your child, if you're a young Lorraine Moller, and she showed, like you did, at a young age, this extraordinary prowess of sport, at what stage, and she says, Dad, I want to be the best. I really Ronnie, I'm it. just going to close the door here because sure. noise. At what stage should, if you have a, a daughter or a son who says, I want to be the best, and it comes from inside them, 
At yes. what stage do you now, act upon that? And that's absolutely key, that the ambition to do something is coming from the child because if mm. it comes from the parent, I guarantee you it's going to belly up. Yes. It's not sure. going to work. Mm. So for somebody to reach the top, they have to be driven from their own heart mm. to do what they're doing. And if it's somebody else's dream, then it's not going to work. So uh, so children start with gross uh, motor movements and they go from walking to running and developing those gross motor skills to jumping and skipping and all those kinds of things. And then the uh, finer skills come later in uh, development. So the children are getting the basic, well, running is a basic to many, many sports and many, many things that we do, which is why it's such a great activity. Mm -hmm. um, and also what you're doing when you're doing the running or any bilateral exercise, you're um, engaging the right and left side of the brain as you go right and left. So, you know, it crosses over. And uh, so you are developing that uh, cross-hemispheric talk which uh, then also gives rise to um, getting into the flow state mm -hmm. and uh, and learning to get it. And that's a very creative part of mind. So that's another thing that probably kids, when they get into sports too early, they are being robbed of going into their creative imagination, which also is what screens do. They're given yes. ready-made pictures and they're not uh, accessing their own imagination. Like they are with a the box. Yeah, yeah. So that it's everything, every internal structure has been externalized and then the inner structure of the person doesn't get developed in the same way that it could. So then uh, what we're doing is we are uh, dumbing down their potential. Mm. And uh, that's that's not a good thing either. So um, I think that uh, the competition and because uh, competition comes with it, a sense of uh, ethics. Yes. And that's a really important thing to learn. Uh, that is usually when the development of the frontal lobe suddenly takes a big um a leap forward at puberty. Mm. So I would wait until puberty to really introduce the ideas of competition or um, sort of measuring yourself. Because um, if you're always taught to measure yourself against other people, that's a trap in itself. It's a terrible trap. It's a shocking yeah. trap. Yeah, and, and nearly everyone's going to come up short. It guaranteed, unless you're yeah. the rain Moller. <laughs> well, course, even I suffered from it. I know. Even, I <laughs> mean, know? all the greats get beaten, right? Romney, yeah. I beat myself up because I only came third. And I go, <laughs> I didn't get silver or gold, you know? Like, you know, it's it's amazing what a number we human beings do on ourselves. It is. Yeah. It is. And, and how we gauge our sense of who we are um, through the judgment of others and um, you would have known that with the media, you know, one minute you're up and then it would be, oh, Paul Lorraine Moller didn't do very well. And um, it's the same for me in 
public life when I was a politician, it's dreadful um, how you evaluate yourself by what others say and 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 write about you. And it's so good to be out of the public eye, and you must feel the same because you can go back to who you are. Yeah, look, I I don't care really that much. No, good for you. People think of me. I, I think I've developed a, a thick skin in some ways, and um, mm. it's uh, a real blessing. And uh, because I know who I am, mm. and and really, if somebody wants to project some idea that's limited, that's theirs, mm. and uh, it has nothing to do with me. So, do you go on? social media like facebook and twitter not much no because that's another trap for young people isn't it because that's what other people think and you did a tweet and then everyone piles in and these kids i understand are messaging each other literally at primary school and um ganging up and it's just boy you've got to so watch what your kids get up to now we're on to the topic of the day and the reason for you being here because I can scarcely talk about this because it is so incomprehensible to me what is happening in women's sport. It is under total assault, could be ruined, and to the extent that it's discussed, concerns that normal people have are dismissed. And I don't understand where this came from. Can you explain what's going on in women's sport? The idea that a man can declare himself to be a woman and turn up in a woman's sporting event, whether it be swimming or running, track and field. How did this come to be? Well, I'm not sure how that happened. Okay, but let, let me just give you a historical perspective because it did not come from the grassroots. It came from top down and it came rather suddenly. Uh, so when I was growing up and participating in sports, uh, there was women were excluded, were largely excluded from sports. It was a man's domain. Um, and at the top levels, you'll see that there was historically not the same events for women at all. They were included in the Olympics, but, you know, they had a little bit of tennis, a little bit of swimming, um, and sort of uh, things that were sort of suitable for the ladies, right? Um, not real sport. Yeah. So we get to 1972 Munich Olympic Games. That was uh, the longest event for women was the 1,500 metres, which is less than a mile. My goodness. So for an up-and-coming youngster like myself, I couldn't think of long distance for women. That just wasn't in the repertoire. Um, running cross-country, so the men ran uh, probably like five or six miles. The women ran one or two miles. Um, and they ran unofficial events. So essentially we would, you know, go to some field somewhere for cross country, which was really, uh, you know, a paddock. And um, and then the woman would run their little event and, 
then the men would have their big event and we'd chair them and then scurry back to the hall to make the cups of tea for everybody to... That literally happened to you. You you were going to events and running in a paddock separate to the event. Yeah, well, we were just sort of like the sort of like little, well, like like we have maybe a kiddies run, you know? Yeah. So the women oh, were in that category. Wow. We weren't taken seriously. Um. Although, you know, we were really serious about it. But it's just the way it was. It's not that I, you know, I felt any angst about it. You didn't suffer a trauma or anything. the way it was, yeah. Mm. And uh, and so it wasn't until 1980 that 1979 I ran my first marathon, and that was – uh, purely as a training thing because I wasn't interested in the marathon. It, it, if I looked up in it, my Olympic dreams, it, it, it wasn't there. The marathon wasn't there. So, you know, I my aspirations were in the track, of course. However, there was a movement by women to have longer distances included. And uh, one of the key people who spearheaded that was Catherine Switzer. Now, Catherine lives in New Zealand. She's American. Um, but she uh, was dedicated to providing opportunities for women in sport um, after her experiences of running in the Boston Marathon and getting pulled out because she was a woman. Um, or tried, uh, they tried to take her out of the race. Um, they didn't succeed, but uh, when they discovered she was a woman, because that was like just a terrible thing for women to be running a marathon. And so she uh, helped to spearhead a movement to prove that women could be in the Olympics and they were worthy of it. And there were certain criteria. So she put on a marathon in London in 1980 and I was invited along because I'd run a marathon as a training run but which put me as one of the the top women in the world because there weren't very many running the marathon at that time and uh, so as a result of that I got this invitation to go run this uh, it was a showcase race really and um in, in England, and uh, they paid for me and my boyfriend, and we stayed in this flash hotel in the middle of London, and I thought, no, this is just fantastic. All I have to do is run a marathon, and I get this oh. free trip with my <laughs> With my boyfriend, coach, etc. So, um, so I ran that race, and I won it, and um, that the uh, all the uh, media attention around it was uh, very um, uh, significant and, uh, you know, TV coverage and front page in the papers. And this was something that was absolutely phenomenal. It was the first time that the streets of London had ever been closed for a sporting event. And it was a women's event, no less. My so there was this, you know, and, and it became the precursor to the London Marathon. So the London Marathon was instituted after that, but it was based on this woman's race. And so as a result of that, largely, and other other women pushing in other areas, the marathon was included in the Olympics in 1984 for the first time. And so that was uh, suddenly that bridged a huge gap which went from 1,500 metres, now they had the marathon. Uh, the events in between, they added a 3,000 metres. Um, 
and then uh, eventually the other distances got uh, entered into the Olympics for women so that by 2000, women finally had uh, equal uh, events as the men. But that's not until 2000. So, um, you know, wouldn't women wouldn't compete in the pole vault, say, or, you know, those events, because they thought women couldn't do that. And once that marathon got in the Olympics, then the, I think it started this real rapid evolution of women in the, especially in track and field and running events. And uh, so those opportunities opened and I was an up and coming runner, able to ride the wave of this rapid evolution in women's sports and participate in it. And also because I had the uh, benefit of the Lydia training, which um, gave me an across the board uh, type of fitness that where I could compete, you know, I ran 1500 meters, 800 meters right up into the marathon and could do well in that whole range of events because of the uh, type of training that I had uh, always being able to draw on that. And so we saw this participation of women come into the sport and at all levels. And as the running boom entered and women now had this, uh, you know, we had been sanctioned by the uh, Olympic body, um, it just flooded. And today we have now come to the point where you go to a major marathon, etc. cetera, uh, women take up more than 50% of the participants. Really? I did not know that. Yes. And and also the marketing went a lot to women because women tend to be the ones that will, you know, spend the family income <laughs> to determine yeah. where it goes. And uh, so, you know, marketing to women, so, you know, coloured shoes and, you know, snazzy outfits and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in my day, you didn't have gear that was geared towards women. It was, um, yeah. The way we it were seems, married. I mean, I just take it for granted that women can compete in all these fields, but it's such a recent thing. It's yeah. hard to imagine. It's I mean, surprising, that, isn't it? It is. It is astonishing. Yeah. And then uh, you know, in the Commonwealth Games, so I ran the um, Commonwealth Games marathon in Edinburgh in 1986. I got the silver medal, um, and and all those Commonwealth Games events. Now, uh, if we go back to 1974 Commonwealth Games in Christchurch, which is coming up for its 50th anniversary. So, you know, that really dates me. <laughs> so uh, I ran in those as an 18-year-old in the 800 metres. And the woman had a compound within the uh, uh, the Commonwealth Games village. They had the, the village and it was all, you know, had... Uh, you know, fences around it and, you know, you you couldn't come in unless you had the special pass and all the rest. And then within that, they had another compound with uh, a big fence around it where the women were housed. So we could go in and out, but the men couldn't come into the women's compound. Quite right. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we were considered like we were the, the special 
um, you know, had to be protected um, from the forces of these uh, males, etc. And um, and and in 1974, there wouldn't have been a, a women's marathon. Presumably, the longest distance that a woman could run at the 74 Christchurch Commonwealth Games would be what 1500 meters or something 1500 like that. 1500 meters. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. So I did not know that. Yeah. So. As women participated and demanded their own events, um, eventually they got them. Mm. And they were protected events. They were a protected category. And we did, at the international level, to partake in it, we had to have a a genetic um, chromosome test, right? So we had to test. It was a cheek scrape. And, and uh, that would be sent away to a lab and it would check whether you were at XX or XY and then you would be given a card. So I was a card-carrying female. Like, oh, wow. So <laughs> I would have thought these things were obvious, but there you go. Yeah. So that worked pretty well. And So right um, from the get-go, mm-hmm. it was a genetic test for every competitor or random? No, for every female that wanted to compete in the female events, you wow. had to show that you were a female. Otherwise, you went into the men's events. Got it. I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, and so they knew that, back then, of course, what a woman was. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't any dispute. <laughs> there, there was. We were a protected category, and, yeah. um, and uh, we appreciated that. And I, I thought it was pretty funny to be a card-carrying female, you know. Yes, it was, you could prove it. was it. great. You know, you pull it out at a bar and go, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so um, then uh, occasionally, now it works well for, uh, just listen to a scientist on this, but the 99.96% uh, accuracy for whether you're a male or female. There's a a 0.4% of people that would need further testing. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So they might have some genetic anomaly or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would have a committee that would then investigate and then make a decision about where that person should be. And then it came up with this a very famous case, Castor Semenya. Now, Castor Semenya is uh, South African and uh, very mannish in her appearance in the female 800 metres, brought up as a female, uh, and she won everything by a country mile. She was uh, supreme in the woman's 800 metres, and uh, she had this testing and it failed. However, um, she um, challenged it and uh, it went to committees and it became like a test case. Uh, She won the first few rounds and continued to compete as a female. Um, It turned out that she was... uh, um, a male, she had a full uh, um, male testes, et cetera, but they were internal. And so um, 
you know, she was one of those special cases. And mm. then it was determined that uh, she couldn't compete as a woman. And uh, and so that became a big test case. And it went on for quite a few years. Then the... Uh, that must have been quite devastating for competit- competitors who, you know, at the height of their career are competing against all intents and purposes a male and being robbed of their dream and the opportunity well, to have their dream. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, look, you know, when you're competing and, and then you have a, a person that shows up and stands on your start line and they've got a, you know, five o'clock shadow and all the rest and you go, yeah, well, that's not really fair. You know, we know they're yeah. a man, and, you know, da, 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 da. But, and, uh, and was it the view that the South African competitor, was it accepted by the athletes, the fellow competitors, that it was a man, or did they not know? How did that play out for the competitors at the Well, I think the general consensus was that she was a man, uh, though I can't speak really from first-hand experience, only from hearsay, because she was um, past my era. And that Um, was a a genetic issue where... um, uh, there was an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so that challenged yeah. that challenged the uh, authorities because they had to be making a decision about the appropriate category for this competitor to be in. Yes. So they scrapped the uh, chromosome test and they went to determining how much testosterone you had. And that became the measure of testosterone levels of whether you could compete in the man's or the women's, right, or whether you could compete in the women's, except they, first of all, they set it way too high to begin with. So, um, and I think it was 10, I'm not sure, nanomoles or whatever it is. Um, And so women have usually about uh, less than one. The average man has somewhere between five and ten. Oh my goodness! Oh. Okay, so uh, so ten was sort of upper limit. So that meant that you know, if you tested that, well, that wasn't quite fair. So they brought it down to five. It still wasn't fair. I mean, five times as much. Yet, if you had a woman that took uh, male hormones to increase her performance, she would be banned. She would be. Yes yeah breaking the rules so that wasn't fair either so it really was sort of um up in the air for a long time um how crazy is it because for thousands of years men and women have been able to find each other and get married and have children and here we have a committee struggling to identify what is a man and what is a woman by a simple rule because well, you, would have, you you would have thought okay we've got a chromosome test uh, every now and then it, there might be an anomaly, but let's attend to that. But they threw the test out. Yes. I, I think they should go back to the test. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah, because uh, the majority of us are XX or XY. Yes. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can take hormones, et cetera. But what they're finding now, um, they opened it up, um, you know, to people who could identify 
who you know so there, there came in the strange thing which I think where everything got really muddy, muddied where sex and gender became sort of interchangeable mm-hmm. in terms and so and they're not so there is a group that well first of all sex and gender were sort of considered the same thing they were a biological thing yet you got a group suddenly coming in and um maybe not suddenly but saying that gender is an identification thing and so you might uh identify with the gender other than the sex that you're born with and they were able to exploit this anomalous case and the dropping of the chromosome test they were able to exploit that to make it sound not a binary thing but a continuum yes an arbitrary thing yes and and this I, I mean I don't agree with that I I don't think we're a continuum of sexes uh, no you know, biology is pretty expedient and it doesn't bother with having a continuum because, uh, you know, what what makes the world continue is having uh, you're either a male or a female. Mm. And, um, and, you know, you've got uh, variations at each end of the bell curve, but the majority um, is that we have male and female so that we have... Uh, people coming in to continue this the story of humanity um, and when you when you said women getting into the olympics and into sporting events was from the grassroots up to push on the administrators of the sports this issue of letting men compete in women's events has been a top down thing mm-hmm. it's been the administrators adopting the view that there is gender and it's separate to biological sex and a man can identify a gender soul or a gender thing and suddenly declare himself a woman and therefore compete in the name of inclusion in a woman's event. Yes. So... I can't can't even begin to understand that. Yeah, I mean, I I think most people don't. They don't realise. I don't think it's administrators. I think it comes higher up than administrators. Administrators are are probably told this is the policy and then they uh, have to um, abide by it. but I do think from the top down, there is a move to uh, perhaps uh, we've had the family unit disintegrated. Now this, uh, uh, how we define ourselves as human beings. And uh, I think that the force of our sexuality is one of the strongest uh, forces that govern our lives and is pretty much uncontrollable. Uh, there's an attempt to break that down. I don't think it's going to happen, actually. It's, um, but uh, it's bigger than sport, isn't it? Yes, yes, oh, totally. So, uh, what really gets my <laughs> uh, my dander up is um, the uh, that the word woman is being taken away from woman. Yes, 
so as a group, uh, we're being disenfranchised. And I don't like that because uh, I thought, okay, in sport and, you know, there's all these wonderful things happening and I'm a part of this movement and women have the opportunity to do things that weren't available to them and we have left something better for the next generation. And so I'm sort of sitting pretty smug at the things that were achieved. And next thing, somebody opens up the back door and mm. and you know, that's blown apart and you go, what? what? Well, how, how the heck did this happen? In this respect, I'm a conspiracy theorist way down a rabbit hole because I don't know, but I can't see how this can come about with good intentions. And I don't think that the activists are strong enough or number enough or have enough economic or political power to drive it. I think there are politically powerful people who are inflicting this and the activists are sort of around the fringe acting as cover because we could just tell all those activists to bugger off and they would have to, if you know what I mean, <laughs> because we are the majority. But yeah. that that this whole activist thing to me is like a cover for a drive to eliminate one of the foundations of life, family, reproduction, um, joy, um, contentment, self-worth, which is the distinction between a man and a woman, and in doing so, destroy women, destroy men, and destroy their sense of self-worth, and at the same time, bewilder us because we're left not knowing what to think. And you can see it in your children where they're teaching this in the schools, that they're just like confused little kids, like, what? Boy, girl? No, it's different, isn't it, mum? But the teacher says, um, something big is afoot to do that to us. Oh, I agree with you 100%, Rodney. And I can't understand, like, I mean, I, I, I don't want to. Um, I don't think, I don't know what it is. Like, is it, I, I can't imagine there's a group of men um, sitting there like in some movie um, sitting in an office somewhere and smoking cigars and saying, this will really rock the world, ho, 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 and then we'll take control. I mean, I can't picture that. But how could we get to this point? It just it staggers me. Don't you feel that? Yeah. Well, you know, look, I don't – first of all, um, you said you're a conspiracy theorist, and yeah. so usually what people will preface trying to figure it out is say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, yeah. but, right. But, now, no, I'm but, in there. Yeah. But, I'm no but. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, and, you know, I heard that that term conspiracy theorist was coined by the FBI to disenfranchise people who countered the narrative and so, uh, you know, you're considered, uh, you say conspiracy theor theorist, and you're a nut job, right? Yeah. Um, 
And uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't care what anybody uh, calls me. I, I do think that if somebody could rule the whole world, they would. Yes, right. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, uh, for I think uh, some people it's a big game and um, they want to see if they can, if they, uh, I, I think that life's a stage. I think life is probably like a big game and uh, we're going to see if we can uh, reach the goal of um maybe enlightenment and understanding that we are divine creatures uh ultimately and mm. then there's a force that uh has to guard the goal and uh if you're gonna if you're gonna get there you've really got to prove that you're worthy mm. and you that's their job that's the role that they play by trying to stop us um and let's see if they can use anything they like to try yes. to um yes yeah I look uh, upon you, I can see you, listeners can't, and you're a beautiful woman, and you're a wonderful woman, like just you. You beam this beautifulness that only a woman can radiate, if you know what I mean. And a man feels that. And and that difference of a man and a woman is so life-affirming in every sense of that that phrase, and so wondrous and so joyful. And our young people are being robbed of it as though it's no big deal or no big distinction. Uh, chivalry has been killed off. The idea of being a gentleman and a lady has been killed off. And this is not to say that women can't do things. Of course they can. But it's to say they can do things and that we accept is a physiological, psychological, genetic difference at the moment of conception between a man and a woman, which we love. Yeah. And, and yet, the Prime <laughs> the Minister... People have been writing poems and music for, forever. <laughs> and our Prime Minister gets asked, what is a woman? Can't answer and says he's not been prepped to be able to pre-formulate an answer and yet he was married he's got a mother like what would possess a political leader and we see this don't we over and over mm -hmm. again we had a, a supreme court nominee i think it was asked what is a woman and they said they're not a biologist they can't answer the question what on earth is driving them to talk that nonsense. And that's where I get to the conspiracy level because I think, just say it. You know the answer, actually, but you can't bring yourself to say it. And it can't be that they might offend some activists because politicians do that all the time. And who cares? Well, you know, we are um, sources of our own information. Yes. You only have to go on a long run and it just floods through you, you know. Yes. You're just getting all sorts of things. You're putting it all together. It's like you're tuning into the, um, you know, super consciousness of uh, humanity and, and yes. it's all there. And we are uh, able to uh, access that. 
uh, we have to practice, we have to open those pathways to be able to access it. And yet what we're taught is that we're not that. And if we want information, we've got to go outside of ourselves and find some expert who's going to tell us how it is. Mm. Mm. Now, now they're telling us, well, we have to consult with the expert to find out uh, uh, what a man or what a woman is. And it's it's such BS. Uh, Shakespeare Rodney, never um, had this problem. Um, no. Tell me. And, and look, I tell you, uh, it's uh, that inner knowing of what a man and a woman is. Our existence is testimony to that. Yes. Yes. And 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 little boys and little girls know exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they what didn't have to go to school or read a book or have no. somebody else tell them. Yeah. No. Tell me, what does it mean at this moment of time? for women's sport? Well, there's been uh, like a lot of things that have happened in this uh, last three three or four years that have come on so rapidly that we're all just sort of going, what the heck's going on? Um, and uh, trying to get uh, an assessment of the situation. So I think uh, there is that group of people that would uh, seek to uh, trap us into a fixed system and uh, that are not, uh, don't have our best interests at heart. Um, we have been led to believe that governments, et cetera, and we're in a democracy and we're self-governed and they look after our interests on behalf of the collective. Um, I don't think that's true. And I think we are finally waking up to that. Yes. That, um, you know, we got to be careful because we're, we're be in really danger careful. of losing our humanity. We, and uh, there is a group that would like to uh, see that happen. Um, and so this is why it's the waking up time. And uh, we are, we're getting a, a fast education in uh, expanding our view of how we think of ourselves. And we're breaking out of the box. I think that's actually a really, really good thing. Uh, although uh, a lot of the systems are, and breaking out of them are pretty painful. Uh, uh, I can't remember what your original question was. My original you. question <laughs> is, what does it mean for women's sport at this moment in time? So, uh, yes, so where I was getting to with that is uh, we've seen uh, the government make their policies uh, they have used this word inclusion over and over again, which annoys me because, you know, as human beings, we respond to that. We go, yes, we all agree that everybody should be included. So we say that, but we don't realize the word is a Trojan horse Absolutely. that brings in these uh, ideas that actually are repressive and divide us and uh, reduce our potential. And so uh, what we've seen at grassroots level is a lot of um, the sports uh, have felt uh, or pushed upon uh, the people involved, the stakeholders, this uh, inclusion idea. And so uh, boys are taking part in girls' sports. Um, and generally the, I've seen that these athletes that take part, that want to be included, they're actually, um, it's like a, 
a B plan for mediocre male athletes. Yes. Right. So they can come in and and take all the goodies and uh and they a lot of them haven't been very nice or gracious or what I would say were uh good athletes. Um, and not even of the trans community as we understood 10 or 20 years ago. Yes. If you know what I mean, they're not genuinely trans. It's an opportunistic thing you feel. Right. Yes, I I, I think so. Um, and it's it's kind of been in your face and too bad and you've got to just suck it up, girls, because mm. here we are. And you've seen, um, especially in the US, there's been quite a few cases like with the swimmer Leah Thomas, etc. And and they're just, you know, hulking guys that yes. are, can we be have women any time of the day and and they're obviously men in women's sports so yeah. it it doesn't look right you're looking at it and you're going well this isn't fair no you've met the wonderful row edge who uh, i follow on twitter and i i suggest everyone follow on her twitter because she's fantastic we've had her on the show um and she's fighting the good fight here and she tells me that there's a mountain biker in New Zealand who's male competing in the girls sports and has destroyed the sport for women who were keen competitors but they just turn up and it's not a race it's like that swimming with Leah Thomas it's not a race and it and it's so dispiriting and as you say Leah Thomas I can't remember what his male name was but he was a mediocre swimmer as a male and he could come in and humiliate these women in the in the pool but more than that he would humiliate them in the changing rooms um this is disgusting and yes may i make a another tough point because i think women have been erased through this process but I think men were raised some time ago. And now men feel unable to speak up and defend women. Because 20 years ago, if any man tried to walk in in a changing shed on a woman or a girl, they would be beaten up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have no doubt about it. They would be beaten up on the spot. You, you you just wouldn't even hesitate. Now, because men have been so reviled for their masculinity and their aggression and their toxicity that they just shrug and don't know what to think because mm -hmm. they, they, they can't think their male thoughts. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. And I think what's happened is you see this um, demasculinization of men and mm. then the masculinization of women. Yes. Um, and uh, women have taken over a lot of the things that men have done and mm. uh, men uh, go, well, you know, what do yeah. I do? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> it's a funny the, thing, isn't it? Because yeah. every one of these things – is a good idea taken to another step. So mm -hmm. I look upon this as it's a very bad idea to criminalize homosexuals. Um, 
um, just it's it's not a good idea. That said, we don't want I don't want homosexuals down the street waving flags and and dancing provocatively in front of families. You know, I sort of don't want sex on display like that. I'm a prude. Likewise, it's been a very very good idea to open up all the opportunities in the world for girls and for women in sporting, in careers, in academia, uh, everywhere. It's a great idea because they're women that want to do things and they shouldn't be excluded uh, from their sex. But we've taken that to say there's no difference between men and women, and we've taken it to be the next step to not criminalising um, and including homosexuals into society is to say, oh, well, then there's this other thing called trans. No, that is men masquerading as women, Mm -hmm. right? It's not a man who prefers a man uh, sexually or a woman who prefers a woman sexually. It's a man masquerading as a woman. Now, I think they're perfectly entitled to walk around in a dress if they choose to, but they're not entitled to walk into the women's changing rooms or bathrooms or sports, full stop. Mm-hmm. And that's the little step that we've missed. And I can't understand why we always were anxious about predators on kids. Well, we've opened up all our private spaces for women to predators because if I'm a sexual predator, I just need to say I'm a woman and I can walk into my girls' changing rooms. Mm-hmm. I can't be stopped. This is mm-hmm. this is shocking. I had an interesting experience, Lorraine. I wrote to our new mayor down here in Queenstown. I had to look his name up to remember. Glenn Lewis is his name. And we've had a big Pride Week, and it's been over the top, you know, waving flags and everything. God, just give it a rest, you know. Like, why do why do my kids have to go somewhere and have Pride flags waved at them and 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 celebrate a sexual preference. I mean, it is bizarre to me. Why are we celebrating a sexual preference? Just get on with your life and leave mm-hmm. everyone alone. Anyway, I rode off to the mayor and I said, look, I was a bit worried about his comments because my children had a bad experience in a changing shed where a man came out, obviously a man, dressed as a woman. He had a beard and it was pretty traumatizing for them and my kids now won't go to a public changing room or public toilet or go to the toilet at school because they don't feel safe Mm -hmm. and I wrote to the mayor and explained this to him and said could he give a commitment that under his administration men wouldn't have access to girls changing sheds at council facilities. Pretty basic question. Mm -hmm. And he came back and said, oh, your email has been noted. Mm. That's supposedly a man. No man with assault would not stand up for a young girl to have her changing shed protected for men. But our mayor won't. And of course, that's now every politician. Yeah. 
sport. Chris Luxon was asked about this. You may have missed this here in New Zealand. And he said he's not going to spend the election campaign talking about toilets because people that do are on another planet, to which my question is, I don't want to talk about toilets too, but I want to defend women because I'm a man. Yeah. Don't you want to do that, Mr. Luxon? And isn't it that fundamental, Lorraine? Yes, well, he's deflecting. Yes, but why? So that's he. You know, if if you don't uh, understand the issue at hand, it's nothing to do with toilets. No, you know, I'd give him a toilet brush and send them off. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my goodness! As you look around the world because you're in the United States, the UK and the United States, do you see a shift occurring back to yes. saying you do? Yes. And that's because uh, people are starting to have their voices heard, saying we don't want this. Uh, parents have been speaking up. And uh, so there has been a, a response on mass. Mm. Um and so here in the US, you've got more and more states that have committed to having girls and women's only change rooms in sports. Um, and so there has been a swing the other way. Mm. So, uh, and then uh, athletics uh, at the international level have made a determination that. Uh, men cannot compete in women's sports. Uh, so uh, any male that's gone through puberty it does not qualify. Right. Uh, and I think other sports have done that. And that is necessary because they realise that uh, that uh, whole avenue of sports would be killed altogether. Killed uh, mm. Yeah. And I think often at the bottom of this, because what really drives our world is the bottom line of economics. Mm. And uh, if women with their spending power and their participation stop participating, then there's a lot of money or revenues that are lost immediately to certain groups. So it's in mm. their interest to keep it going and viable. Um, mm. And I think it's always a shame when we start to go backwards I think probably we'll look back at this period of history and go, you know, they thought they were the most liberal and free, et cetera, and they were actually the most repressed. Yes. That time. is one of the that is one of the funny things, isn't it? That and like um they wouldn't even like us having this conversation. And that's why we have to have reality check radio because you couldn't go on Radio New Zealand or go into the New Zealand Herald and have this discussion because um, ideas scare them. And at heart is this tyrant, totalitarian view of the world that is being imposed upon us, and the media are complicit in it. Um, mm -hmm. And so anyone who speaks up, like us, are demonised. And it's so wonderful to have you, Lorraine, because um, of your status and the respect that people hold for you so that when you speak, um, people will listen. Um, so I thank you for that. And little girls everywhere, 
pursuing their dream have to have that dream open to them. Mm-hmm. And that can only be if we say there's men's sports and there's women's sports. Yes. Um, so I'd like to just touch on this issue, which I think is a big one, is that in my time, uh, sports was not a usual thing for girls. And when I was growing up, I was discouraged from participating in sports, although, you know, I didn't listen. So thank goodness. Um I I had that in me not to listen to uh, what other people said half the time. Um, But um, women or girls about uh, generally at puberty, it's a hard time for girls because Mm. the the changes uh, uh, that happen uh, athletically for girls puts them at a disadvantage, whereas at the same age when they are prepubescent, they usually girls are uh, they a little taller and <laughs> a little more faster developing, and so they will generally athletically exceed the boys uh, at the same age, prepubescent. And then as soon as they go through puberty, then that, that whole thing changes. Mm. And I remember it being a tough time for me too. And I got very anemic once I started menstruating and uh, losing uh blood every month and um, all those sorts of things. And I had to adjust. Um, And fortunately, it it was just my love of running and the freedom I felt from it that kept me going at the time. But I can remember people saying, hey, you're done. You're all washed up, you know, Um, give up. Um, And, you know, and that there was no future in it for me as a female. Uh, So, uh, I know how hard it can be for young women. And at that time, because of just, you know, honestly dealing with periods and stuff, it's just a horrible, horrible thing for a girl to have to go through. And I can remember thinking, this is so unfair. This is yes. so unfair. I've got to put up with this every month. Why couldn't I have been born a boy? Yes. Now, if, if there had been this voice at school saying, well, you probably are a boy. Oh, right? my goodness. You know, so then uh, I get sidetracked from what is my destiny, and now I'm all messed up on hormones and doing all this stuff and probably, you know, you know, cutting your breasts off and all these things that girls are being encouraged to do. Absolutely criminal in my Opinion. It is criminal. It is it is yeah. the highest child abuse. Yes. And our school and, teachers uh, and our schools are going along with it. Yeah. And and so there's nothing to do with acceptance or inclusion. It is uh denying you can't be born in the wrong body. I, I just it's, it's a no. stupid thing to say. You can't no. be born in the wrong body. No. You're born in the body you're born in, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, and that's why you and I sit here and listeners sit there listening to us, and it is so mad you can't even understand why you're discussing it. It's like so much of what's happening in the world today because it's, it's, oh, yes, you need to discover who you really are. And um, I went along when my daughter was 11 to the speeches of the winning debaters at her school. So they're 11-year-olds. 
and a little boy gets up who now identifies as trans, so he's 12, and he spent his speech discussing that there were 72 genders and that he couldn't cover them all. And all the parents were sitting there clapping this and saying how brave he was. And you're thinking, this is barking mad, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, It was like everyone was in a trance or something. But I think they believed it. I don't think they were just socially going along with it. I think they, I've got no idea. I I, I, I struggle with it. And um, the other thing I noticed, Lorraine, my kids are keen on sport. And the sports they do are quite physical. And I've I've got to help in terms of judging at a low level and watching the kids. And oh my goodness, once they hit puberty, the difference between the boys and the girls is so phenomenal. It is just, it is completely different. That physicality and aggression that these uh post-pubescent boys bring to a sport compared to the girls it's just night and day mm-hmm. you know you can't mistake it in, 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 in a sport and the idea that you would allow these um, young gorillas <laughs> into a physical sport with women just horrible Lorraine we've run out of time um, it is always a pleasure to speak with you I salute you for what you're doing and speaking up for womanhood and for girls, and also in doing that, speaking up for men, because uh, men need this discussion too, because we need to be men and to man up um, and understand that our women and our girls, our wives and our daughters, need our support right now, and it's time to shake it off and be a man. And I can promise you that if any man tries to get into the changing shed with my daughters, there will be trouble. I will yes. not be able to stop myself. And um I I I um that's what I'm put on earth to do. To stand Excellent. up for my Excellent. girls. Yes. Um lovely to have you. Rodney? Sorry. Oh, I'd just like to add that uh when I was growing up, I was nurtured very much by the men yes. who ran with us and uh they you know, they they really I when I was running in at university and started running with a group of guys, and they called me running chick, right? Yeah. And uh, they, it was all so um, so dear, you know. It was yes. just lovely the way they were so proud of me and what I did. But they looked after me, yes, and they made sure that I was nurtured, and and that's the the male role to and um, safe, yes, and safe. yes. To to uh, protect uh, mm. that uh, environment so that mm. the woman can uh, thrive and be loving and pass on that to the next mm. generation. And so we all have our role, and they are deeply um, embedded in our psyches and in our bodies. Yes, of uh, biology and. Yes. Uh, that's important and to recognize it and uh, to realize that the way that we are born, that is precious. Absolutely. Don't try to change it. Love it. Love it. You know, realize it's got so much treasure in there. Yeah. Um, And even the confusion and uh, the heartache of growing up through puberty and all that that entails 
it's all part of making you a woman and who you are, making you a man and who you are, and learning that respect uh, for others. And what this movement is, is a deep disrespect for humanity. Yes. For what makes us yes. human and respectful to one another. Lorraine Moller, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you. We love your work. We love you. Um, and it's amazing to think of all your sporting achievements and what you're doing now is even more important because you're speaking out for us. So I thank you for that. You're it's my on, pleasure, Rodney. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057, uh, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Aren't we blessed with the guests we have and aren't we especially blessed to have so blessed to have Lorraine Moller and to have her along to speak with us this morning. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're coming up to our weekly event uh, with Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpoint, Sandpit Point, Sandpit, with my friend Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Morning, Rodney. Today we've got a, a, an interesting question, and I sort of agree with the questioner. And I think from talking with you in past, you don't mind this, but we'll see what you say. But we, you have an explanation for it. You have a good explanation for it. So the question is, why are votes discarded slash disposed of after the, I believe it's a six-month period when other papers are hung on to for years? I assume they're referring to, you know, like your financial records and whatnot, that's seven years and things like that. So mm. why are the votes discarded slash disposed of after only six months? The funny thing is, I'm not an expert on election uh, law and election processes. I sort of um, made myself an expert on parliamentary processes and left the election up to people that were really into it, and I'd just take their advice. But they do do an interesting thing after every election. They have a committee of uh, MPs uh, look into it and how it went and also have people able to submit on it. And I do remember this coming up. And the key thing to think about is this. The ballot papers are of no interest after the election, after they've been counted, um, because there's no possibility after that period to revisit the election. Uh, it's counted and done. And I myself would make it even sharper. I don't like that you can go and vote when it's convenient to you over several weeks. I would mm. make the election day on a day, and that's it, unless there's extremely exceptional circumstance, like you're a soldier about to head off into a war zone and you can't vote, and so you get to vote a week early. The reason being is that if you make everyone front at the ballot box, it's clean because the party scrutineers can be there and they can see that Rodney Hyde's walked in, Rodney Hyde's marked off the electoral roll and Rodney Hyde's been handed a ballot paper and he's crossed off and he can't vote anywhere else. Like, it's it's tight. 
You don't want um, people just voting in casually, and you certainly don't want what we have in local body politics, a mail-in vote. And, of course, it was all this, you don't want computer counting. It was all those shenanigans that befuddle and befoul um, the American system. Now, when you look at a ballot, it's just a tick. It doesn't have a name on it, right? Because it's anonymous. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's important that it be anonymous because you don't want people in 10 years' time saying, oh, Tane Webster, who did he vote for in 2023, right? And, of course, after six months, of what use is all the ballots? And it is best that they just get destroyed along with any record of who voted for whom. I think the voting anonymously is a key aspect of our democracy because you can choose to say who you voted for, you can put a sign on your gate, but you don't have to. And the reason that's significant is you can imagine working for someone who's an avid National Party supporter or the Labour Party supporter, and they can find out who you voted for. And they say, well, you know, this guy's an idiot because he votes for the wrong team and that person's not going to advance, whatever, whatever, whatever. And you don't even have to tell your husband or your wife who you vote for. You just say, it's my choice. You can lie about it. You could be, you could be married to a staunch National Party member and say, yeah, 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 I'm going to go off and vote for the National Party and go and vote Aotearoa legalised cannabis, right? And not tell them, because it's your vote. And the great thing about it being anonymous is it means that you can't come under that persuasion or that um, pushing because you don't have to reveal your vote to anyone and it can't be known and it's good that all the records get destroyed. Um, so that that would be how I would see it. I can't see why. Why would we be wanting the ballot papers from 1974 election campaign? And you say, well, you wouldn't. There's no earthly use of them. So what, are they just sitting in storage? Nah, destroy them. Does that make sense? Now, your financial records, of course, are a different matter because people can contest what happened in a deal and they need to see the contract. The IRD can come after you and say, I think you misdeclared your income, um, all the rest of it. And there can be a necessity to go back and have a check on the records. There's no good reason for looking back on how people voted. Mm. Right. Get it clean on the day and get a result on the day. Um, to me, that's uh, the most crucial thing because I regard an election not so much as voting for the government that you want, but having the ability to kick out a government that you don't want. That's its great success because in every system of government, absent democracy, you get stuck with people with the power and you're unable to remove them. You actually have to have a revolution, which is untidy, particularly because those in power have all the army and the police. 
So democracy is a great thing because it keeps governments somewhat in line because if they get too far out of whack with public sentiment, and let's be honest, this Labour government have, we just go in there and vote them out and vote in another lot. Mm, mm, that's what that's what's going to happen. There you have it, Tane. That's another week. Send us your questions. Uh, text twenty fifty seven. Email inbox at radiocheck.radio. That's politics explained. Back to the basics in the political sandpit with Tane Webster. Um, oh boy, you know I'm always amazed how little I know about politics and um, how I sort of sailed through because the entire areas of the process that I never had the time or the ability to become expert on, and I literally had to rely on those that were. And the running of an election is one of them. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us today. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Are we heading into an election and it? makes me remember back to, oh, so far, 2008, and I thought I'd share it with you because we had those coalition talks, which will be happening now, and you might wonder what goes behind closed doors. It was quite remarkable for me. Um, I hadn't spoken to John Key much before the election. We rang and we talked a couple of times. He was a great guy, very easy to get along with, and we had a very, very um, amicable relationship heading into the election and after the election and throughout his entire time uh, as Prime Minister. We had a little bit of differences, but uh, they were minor compared to uh, his good nature. So we had an election, and it had happened that he needed us to form a government, but we didn't have many options. And um, I had got close to Tariana Turia in the Maori Party mainly because in the previous election to 2005, Helen Clark was despising her and obviously despising me because I was ACT, and I was also being despised by the National Party. The thing had been to rub, rub me out. 
And so Tariana and I, whenever we'd go along to these debates on TV or radio, we were sort of the two outcasts and we'd end up sitting in the corner together talking and giggling away. And I I, I found her a wonderful woman. And then we both got back into parliament and we were both in opposition and we sat beside each other for three years and I enjoyed her company so much. And I particularly liked her gossiping about uh, what it was like to be in the Labour caucus and some of the inside stories, um, how, for example, Helen Clark couldn't do conflict. And so whenever she had an upset, she'd have to send someone else like Michael Cullen or David Benson Pope to discipline Tariana. And that if Tariana got in the office with Helen Clark, she could get what she wanted because Helen Clark didn't do conflict, which is quite surprising. Anyway, uh, after the election, I suggested to John Key, maybe he had the own, has the own idea, that he should also get the Mary Party on board for the government. I don't know whether that was wise, but I thought it was a good thing to do. And I chatted to Tariana and I said, look, we should not play off against each other. So what they're offering us and talking to us about, I will share with you if you share with us what you're talking to National about. That worked out pretty well except subsequently Peter Sharples put a kibosh on that. Uh, he was more of a Labour man than an act man and sort of went into the deal on his own um, with the Maori Party. And I think they could have done better for us all because we had a lot of agreement about things, actually, the two parties. I met with John Key and Bill English straight after the election. I think it would be the Sunday um, in Parliament buildings. Uh, I took my deputy, uh, Heather Roy, and we had a discussion about forming a government, and Bill English had a prepared a piece of paper, which would basically his offer. It was desultory, actually. It gave back nothing. And um, I suggested that um, they would need some good luck because we would just give confidence to supply that I wouldn't sign up to that. They could form a government, but they wouldn't have us as a coalition partner. I called a caucus, talked about it with the caucus, talked about it with the board. I got some policy experts. We had a few days back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, producing an agreement that we were all comfortable with. It was very amicable. And in the finish, Bill English and John Key thought that the deal that uh, ACT had come up with was very good. And we could let the Governor-General know that we had a government, that we could have a government and he could declare that we had a government and swear us all in as a government. It was extraordinary and it was a very moving moment to be sworn in as a minister. I was extremely proud to be sworn in as a minister and it was very special. So that's how the coalition agreement went. It was I guess a very Kiwi thing and not the drama and the angst that you think it might be. You were very much aware of the responsibility of having a government for our country and that not to abuse the process and to treat it with respect. And I found that in cabinet too, that you were so busy and there was so much on that the sort of petty squabbles of politics were put aside and you concentrated on doing the right thing. I found it very uplifting and quite different to what people would imagine. And I assume that other cabinets are the same. There's a sort of bit of an awe that comes with it. And um, 
you get a lot of help too from officials and advisors. And even though I'm now skeptical and distrustful of all government because of our recent experience, I would very much like that trust to come back in uh, for me with our government, but it's going to take a while. But that was my experience back way back in 2008. Send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at readilycheck.radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Lovely to have you with us. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR. Reality Check Radio. And there you have it. Real talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Wally Richards, what a star. Grass scrub, strawberries, tomatoes. I can't wait for my tomatoes to grow. And actually, now I gotta remember to pinch off the laterals and break the leaves. Two different techniques. But to grow those laterals is going to be really cool and have lots of delicious tomatoes. And then how wonderful to have Lorraine Moller join us and talk to us and uh, make us realise that the womb is turning, as it were, in favour of women's sports and away from this top-down whatever it is that is suggesting that men can just, second-rate men can just choose to enter the women's field and ruin the competition for everyone. Uh, it's good to know that there's light at the end of that tunnel where our young girls and women who love their sport. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send us a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us today. We have enjoyed your company immensely. I look forward to hearing from you.